This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Shirlene Ogobi, better known as uh, Shirley Whirl, MD on social media. Um, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is. We were both at University of Chicago when she was a medical student. I was a resident, so our paths crossed. And in the years since, I've seen her grow and blossom into her new role as an artist, um, as, a, as an influencer for good, for change, and who really has a, a very empowering and passionate story to tell, which she tells through a number of different mediums, which we'll get into for her today. Dr. Ogobi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Dr. Bradley. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Thanks for that introduction. You have had an incredibly busy year, so it, it does mean a lot that you're able to carve aside some time to come and share some of the things that you're passionate about with us. Oh, it's no problem at all between old friends. So let's start by getting a little into your backstory. You're Ghanaian-American. And can you talk about your parents and kind of how you were raised? Yeah, for sure. So um, I was born in Ghana. We moved to the United States when I was six years old. I am second generation doctor, right? So my mom is a physician. She was trained in Ghana and actually came to the United States um, to complete her residency um, in pediatrics now. She's currently working as a hematologist. Um, And so kind of in the course of that, she actually came ahead of us. Uh, She came to the States about a year before the we did and the plan was initially that she would come back and, and work in Ghana um, but of course as um, all plans go things kind of went a little bit awry so we ended up coming here um, and I always joke that I, I later found out that I asked my parents like why didn't we um, go back to Ghana and they were like we didn't have money for the plane tickets so that's how I'm why I'm American <laughs> <laughs> um, and so um, we moved around quite a bit we actually started off in Chicago um, where she finished her training in Cook County. And then we went to a very small town in Malvern, Arkansas, and then to the Woodlands, Texas. I went to college in the, at Washington University in St. Louis and um, then have completed all of my medical training so far, meaning medical school, residency, and now my cardiology fellowship at University of Chicago. Um, so as far as kind of how my, my parents raised me, my dad is trained as an engineer, but we have a slightly different, I guess, non-traditional family structure in that you know, he's the one who kind of gave up his job when he came here um, so that we can keep the family together. And so um, by and large, he was a stay-at-home dad um, as I was growing up. And so I think a lot of my work ethic and a lot of my drive comes from my dad. He's always been, he, he was the one who he was like, Charlene, you're a genius. And I'm like, you are a bugging. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's always pushed me to do um, the absolute most, always had very high expectations for me. Um, and helped me have high expectations for myself. And um, and I think I, I owe a lot of 
how I am and who I am to to that drive. Dick, we have to shout out the parents because they've had so much of an impact on us becoming who we are. Um, so, Charlene, as you advance your education, you finish at Washington University of St. Louis. You attended medical school at Pritzker. You're the first Pritzker grad I've, I've had in the show, to my knowledge. Can you talk a little bit about what drew you to that school and that program? Yes, for sure. So, you know, this my artistic and creative um, pursuits are not something new. They're something I've actually been doing since, oh gosh, since I was a child. Um, and something I've been prioritizing and trying to bring into my studies since um, high school, right? And so um, when I was applying for medical school, I did fairly well on the trail. But one thing that kind of was important for me was her that my the things I brought to the table to be really appreciated and to thought thought of as valuable and not as an extra thing. Um, and I, I will go into this a little bit later. But one thing that's been important for me is that I don't just do the creative pursuits. Mm-hmm. I check. I try my best to check all the other boxes as well. Um, and that's advice I give to other people who come to me, um, medical school hopefuls or residency hopefuls, cardiology hopefuls who are like, oh, I want to do what you're doing. And I'm like, look, the system is not necessarily built to let you just do creative pursuits. And we also have to do everything else. So I I felt that Pritzker was one of the few places that um, when I talked about things like um, diversity and equity, actually cared about it. Um, and um, I felt that they were um, one of the few places too that, and specifically two people, um, Dr. Monica Vela and uh, Dr. Tony Montag, uh, who I interviewed with, right, who actually seemed to see my creative pursuits as a boon. I always joke that Dr. Montag, um, who's unfortunately has passed, but when he interviewed me, we actually didn't talk about medicine. We talked about our favorite books, wow. right? That was the entire interview, right? And so that made me feel very welcome at Pritzker. Um, I also had uh, Victoria Thomas, who's currently a a cardiology fellow, I believe she's at IU, who had been reaching out and like answering lots of questions. And so I had someone, a black woman kind of already ahead of me, who's already kind of knew the lay of the land, who kind of assured me, well, not just, she didn't just assure me of the safety of it, of the Pritzker, you know, she told me about like all the sides, the good sides, the bad sides, right? Which I really appreciated coming in, like knowing what I was going to get into. So I felt like I was going to be accepted into a safe space that kind of valued, valued me. Um, and that's where, how I kind of ended up there. And uh, yeah, the, the familiar names really taking me home. Cause again, seeing all of you guys as, <laughs> you know, young, aspiring med- medical students running around, you know, so full of energy and realizing that you guys are all fellows and attendings now. One, it makes me feel old, but Hopefully I had, I probably didn't have much to do with any of your successes, but I'll, uh, I'll think I did. Speaking of which, and you mentioned the diversity, equity, inclusion, because, (laughs) yes, I just patted myself on the back. Um, Back in 2014, you know, to note, that's when you were kind of coming into medical school. So to be thinking about DEI work and being able to bring that up and finding a program that was uh, supportive of that. It was an even bigger deal back then because we've definitely had a blossom of efforts in this space. So it does speak to kind of the heart of some of the physicians at that program that are still very invested in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. Um, I think that it's unfortunately and unfortunately become very sexy to be into diversity and equity and inclusion in a way that it really wasn't back then. Back then, mm-hmm. um, it was 
not denigrated exactly, but thought of as kind of soft. Um, it's still underfunded. And I can go on and on about how a lot of the people who really pushed it forward are now being pushed to the back. Um, right. And people who otherwise were not interested are now kind of gaining, using it as a way to get academic relevance. But I mean, I'm sleep though. <laughs> we're just warming up. Um, I cut, cut. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I, I cut very little. Um, so going to your website, shirleneobobi.com, I love that it says writer, artist, doctor in no particular order. And as I was researching for this interview, you know, seeing that you really started to channel some of that art and creativity during medical school um, and having been an artist and engaged in that your entire life, what was special about that time as a third year medical student? You know, um, there are a lot of things. I think that I, I actually started the, the, my comments in second year. I just didn't post them largely for people to see at the time. I just posted them within my Pritzker Facebook groups um, when those were still a thing. <laughs> um, but I think third year in particular is this very strange time. It's the first time that you're actually going from the classroom and onto the ward. And you have to translate all of this knowledge, a lot of the basic science, a lot of it not really relevant to the bedside. Um, to the bedside, right? And now you're negotiating all of these relationships with attendings, residents, fellows, you're kind of like your role is a little bit hazy. You know, you have to, you're being evaluated. It's unclear what you're being evaluated on, but like the evaluations matter. Um, and it's it's all the, the work that you put in for the however long you've been going for medicine to your years and years, most, for most of us, like most of our lives, right? Um, kind of comes down to those years in medical school, right? Because if you if you mess up, Right. Maybe your dream of pursuing orthopedic surgery is down the drain. Yeah. Right? Um, and so it's a very high pressure time. And while also being a strict time because you're there for your education, but patients still need to be taken care of. Right. Like and so I always joke that med school is a time, especially your clinical years, it's, it's a time where every med student's a little bit like just a little narcissistic. Like and I'm including myself in that 100 percent. Right. In that, like, you know, people are sick, but you have to still think about your grade and how you're being seen. And you still have to, like, kind of dance a little dance, right? Um, and you need to get people to like you. Um, and so you kind of, in a way, like, are playing at doctor. That's why I always use, like, the baby doctor. But you're, but you're also, like, training, yeah. right? Um, you're playing at doctor in the sense that you still, you're, like, you're, you still have to perform. You still have to, you, you're listening feedback. You're hoping that the things that you're doing get you a good grade, not necessarily the things that you're doing influence patient care. So it's a completely different time. And that paradigm switches entirely in residency, in my opinion, right? Um, where it stops really being like, I don't know about you, but like when I was in residency, I like cared a lot less about what people thought of me and a lot more about like taking care of patients and getting my work done. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and if as a consequence, my hard work was noted, that would be great. <laughs> like, if it wasn't, I didn't like, I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and so I think um, because of all those kind of conflicting emotions and feelings, there was just a lot of material during third year mm. of med school that I think wasn't around as much in the preclinical years. And so you continued to write these cartoon strips and, and pieces of work. You were still sharing them with your classmates, but what pushed you to start sharing them with the rest of the world? Yeah, my best friend, Linda, I guess her all the time because we are so close. Um, she was the one who actually pushed me to share it with the rest of the world. I was 
I was content to stay in my little bubble for quite some time. And she was like, look, like, maybe you can do something with this. And so that's how I ended up uh, posting it initially on Facebook, eventually on Instagram. What was that response that you received? You know, I think that by and large, um, the response, even back then and still now, the response to Shirley World was a lot of people who almost seemed to be exhaling. They're like, oh, gosh, me too. Right. This is the stuff that we don't talk about, that you're supposed to, in medicine, be ever confident. You're never supposed to complain. Um, you're never supposed to be worried about your abilities. And in a lot of ways, medica- medical training encourages stoicism. Um, and I think having, like, being able to visually represent that I wasn't necessarily feeling that, like, or I was feeling feelings or having, having emotions, having responses to things that other people empathized with was like a source of catharsis for people. And so I think by and large, it's been well received. I think back to some of the things that you've written and posted. And, you know, one of the pieces that really spoke to me was a scene from your childhood, um, because as we know, black and other minority children aren't necessarily allowed to just be kids. So it really resonated with me, the experience you had uh, at a hotel room playing with your uh, siblings. Yes, um, that was a formative experience for me growing up. And I think one familiar to um, a lot of Black people growing up in America. Um, And it was really important for me to share that um, experience. I think in the height of, um, this was what, June 2020, George Floyd had just been murdered. And we, I I felt as though, you know, um, as Black people in America, we kept getting re-traumatized. We were were being reminded over and over again how little we matter and how little our lives matter, right, um, to um, this judicial system, to America as a whole. And so I think that for me, I think frequently as Black doctors, we're kind of looked upon as, you know, exceptions or as um, uh, exceptional, I suppose, right? Um, that we've done all the things that you're supposed to do that somehow grant you honorary whiteness. Um, and yeah. I really wanted to uh, disabuse people of that notion with this comic, right? To say that, you know, like my family, like is my mom is a physician and this happened to the town where she was a physician. She's the only pediatrician taking care of everybody in the community, right? Um, and I was, me and my siblings were children. I think I must have been, I don't remember how old I was exactly. I, um, I, I put it in the comic. But, you know, we're children and, and I, I've had, I'm sure everybody's had other experiences, right? Like, I think every kid, regardless of race, can know of a time that they were disrupted because they were having fun, right. right? And the fact of the matter is that that having fun and being disruptive, which is like goes hand in hand with childhood, um, was still was considered criminal, right? In that case, and I had to, I faced my whole family had, was let out, were let out by police. Can you imagine, yeah. you know? And I think that that was that that, that I, I feel like that comic resonated for a few reasons. I think some people felt that they saw themselves in it. And then I, I think a lot of people who've never experienced this before, which is, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard for me to dig into empathy for that. Right. To be like, wow, what a charmed existence, right? That you get to make mistakes. You get to get the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean? My, my husband's white and sometimes we compare childhoods and it's wild. Right. Like the things that he was able to do and mistakes he was able to make that I could never dream of making because I would never be given the benefit of the doubt. You know, I wouldn't be able to move on and be successful. I would be punished. Right. I think that it opened eyes for other, those other people. And it also, of course, invited people who came in to tell me that, you know, if I just followed the hmm, rules. Right. right. So it just redemonstrated um, what like the message that's been given to black people in America has been. So. 
It's one of my favorites yeah. too. And, and the cartoon in question, for those of you that, that have not seen it, it, you know, your beautiful drawing, very um, de- descriptive, the, the facial expressions that you have in your art. And it shows, you know, some black children who for the crime of playing too loudly in a hotel had to experience the weaponization of police when they were called on them. And then the whole family being removed from the hotel and, and the way that you drew these images um, just told the story in such a powerful way. So definitely you'll have to scroll back uh, through the Shirley world MD Instagram. And um, that's one of my favorite pieces. The, the second one, it also kind of deals with that aspect of being seen and being exceptional, as you said, in, in these hallways, because uh, you entitled it mirrors and you told a story about walking down the halls of University of Chicago, uh, Pritzker School of Medicine, and trying to find a black female physician within the the pictures of the graduating classes. Can you share a little bit about the inspiration behind that? Yes, for sure. So it's inspired for a, a few places. One of them is that I genuinely used to do that, right? You'd walk that when um, University of Chicago puts up their graduating classes along a few um, hallways in their um, old hospital and administrative building. And I remember walking to class and looking at the faces in the walls. And the classes start like in the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s, and not seeing anyone who looked like me, right? Um, starting off, I mean, initially the filter assistant would be, oh, where are the women? You know, and the women show up pretty early. They're white. You know, they show, there's a couple um, in every class, typically starting from the 1940s, you start seeing black men filter in, um, probably honestly in greater numbers than there are today, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes around the, like somewhere around the 1960s, 1970s, and it takes a it takes a while before you I find you finally see a black woman, and I think it just goes to show that like, those boundaries have been the barriers of entry have been there forever. Um, and what I found really beautiful about that exercise is that, you know, once one person kicked that door open, the door stayed open, right? Um, that um, we just needed to have, you know, someone break that barrier. Um, and after she broke the barrier, other Black women, like I think that the very next class, there's a Black woman, right? Um, and, and the class after that, and then, the, you know, a couple skips here and there. <laughs> but but, but um, we appear, and I think that it goes, I, I find that that reflected in even what I'm doing now, I'm a in a cardiology fellow. I don't know how long exactly it's been since there was another black female cardiology fellow at University of Chicago, but it has most certainly been over a decade, right in Southside Chicago, which is wow. shameful. Um, yeah. um, but and <laughs> I mean, it's you know, and the, I mean, the last black man was Ameka, who graduated <laughs> three years ago, right? <laughs> so One of my, my classmates. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And I find that. You know, just being there is powerful in and of itself. Just being there and being visible has its own, it, like it redefines what uh, a physician or a cardiologist is supposed to look like, right? It, it is important for my patients, you know, who look like me, right? Um, to, I, I think like it helps with our interactions, right? And I think more than anything, like it's not just about having Black people there for the sake of having Black people. It's about in some parts, cultural competence, competence, right? It's about valuing what different people and what diversity brings to the table. And I think that what I, I especially like about mirrors is that it's, it also includes a call to action, right? Like it says, look, like 
you know, we can't be out here knowing that having physicians share experiences with patients is important for patient care and knowing that it helps outcomes. We can't be out here not recruiting, not recognizing Black talent, right? right? I think that academic medicine loves, like, like I, I said this before, um, about having to check in, check all the boxes before. They love the 15 Black applicants a year who check the boxes, right? They don't want to give anything up to, that has to do with black, the boxes. They want Black candidates who are exactly the same as white candidates, but dipped in chocolate, right? right? So they can have them on the diversity posters, right? Um, and I think that does a huge disservice um, to hospitals. And I think it's, it's, um, it also, you know, it's, it's a loss, right? So one of the things I asked for, uh, I call for in the comic is, you know, for more recruitment from HBCUs, right? Like the fact of the matter is HBCUs still grow, grow, um, train the um, largest proportion of black medical students, right? And a lot of these, especially quote unquote elite institutions, um, don't recruit from them. Um, don't really accept people, um, um, residents from these institutions. And I think that's, you know, I, I think that's not okay um, for a very variety of reasons. But one of them being that, you know, that's where black physicians are being trained, yeah. right? Like, um, and so that was one of the things I, I called for. And one thing that I really appreciated about my University of Chicago residency program is that they, I mean, they listened. The next, this current intern class, like a significant number are from HBCUs and a significant number are black. It's wonderful. It's not just, you know, two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because of a change that you in part affected. And I think going back to that piece, it's so translatable because across the country in our uh, ivory towers of, of higher education, that feeling is translatable. You walk down the halls and if you're a non-white person, everybody on the wall does not look like you. And, you know, that, you know, does it mm-hmm. make you feel welcome to be in an institution where nobody on the wall looks like you. It's something that, you know, some people may not be aware of how that feels if they've never been in our shoes or had that experience. Right. And I think even more than just the feeling, right? Because, you know, people sometimes brush off feelings as important as they are. It's like, what does it translate to in terms of mentorship, Mm. right? How often do do people choose who they want to mentor based on how well they see themselves in the next person, right? Like we like to talk about how, um, people of color mentor people of color frequently, but the fact is, like, white men mentor white men, right? <laughs> like, um, and being like not reminding somebody of their son or of themselves at a younger age, like, is detrimental to your career, yeah. right? Um, and so I think that's that's part of it too, is that you have to open up these pipelines. And I talk pretty frequently on Shirley World about how you know it's not entirely just diversity of like in terms of race or gender or like religious background, it's also recruiting people who are also empowered by this mission so that they can like take some of the load off of the very few black physicians that there are, right? Like um, they should be also mentoring black medical students and black residents and other black hopefuls, right? Like to get into their fields. It should not just be on us. I mean, unfortunately, quite frequently, it ends up being that way. Yeah, absolutely. Which leads to um, another concept, which has, had several publications in the last year referring to it, the minority tax, where you you and I are in these positions. And because we are underrepresented minorities in medicine, Black people, we shoulder a heavier burden in terms of increasing the diversity that we see around us and furthering 
diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. What's been your your experience with that? So I absolutely, I I, I love talking about the minority tax, right? Because I think that um, it is something that I'm glad that people are talking about more, but previously really wasn't discussed. And, you know, I think that basically throughout my entire academic career, starting from college onwards, once I entered an institution, a the expectation from that institution was that I would help recruit people who looked like me to come after me, right? And that expectation was not necessarily, it was not something I was paid for. It was not something I would ever have been able to put on my resume, even though it was incredibly time consuming. And of course, it was something that I felt and I feel like many of us feel like we I must do because someone did it for me, right? Um, and I was not about to pull up the ladder behind me. The problem with this is that, you know, um, it's it's why do they, are the institutions having us do right. this, right? And um, it's not necessarily because they want, they actually want to improve the, um, the representation for the sake of the students. It's probably, it's mostly so that they can kind of check some, some metrics, right? Um, and do they truly value these things? And in my opinion, what I've kind of grown to feel, how I've grown to feel is that the things you value, you're willing to pay for, right? Yeah. Um, and if you're not willing to pay for it, it's not something you consider valuable. And what happens instead is that, you know, um, I think that um, in these institutions, we get recruited to do a lot of free labor, yes. right, yeah. to bring people on after us. And I see this replicated in lots of ways. I, I actually, I, I recently gave a talk at, to the Pritzker medical students, right? Um, and I started it by telling them that, to, I, by asking them, why do they think I'm here? You know, hmm. why am I here? I'm a cardiology fellow. I was currently on consults. I was getting slammed, right? <laughs> I'm like, I, I, why am I here instead of anybody else, right? Uh, in my cardiology fellowship class, right? Why is anybody who's talking to them today, who's a trainee and who's not getting paid for this here? It's because we are black and brown or underrepresented in some other way. And the expectation is that we come here and do this additional work to educate other people, right? Just so that we can maintain our lines, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's something that is, I don't exactly know exactly how to fix it aside from by saying that, you know, we need to be able to get credit for it, right? It needs to be something that's valued the way research is valued, because I always tell people, you know, if I'm spending time writing presentations to give or um, spending time reviewing people's applications or me- providing mentorship, that's time that my white male colleagues are spending churning out papers, right, and working on academic things that, like, will actually move them further in their careers. This is not doing anything for me, right. <laughs> you know, aside from giving me, of course, a sense of fulfillment. Uh, I found in a fellowship that that's unfortunately, like, because I'm one of very few, one of the only's, right, that that has grown exponentially. It means that, um, and not just from, in terms of people who are reaching out for help, right, which I can understand, right, um, but even from faculty, I was, I was asked to help interview residents, which I, I declined, right, because, I felt that it was part of the minority tax, right. right? Because I'm like, there is no other fellow being asked to interview residents, you know, um, on the day before Thanksgiving, too. Oh, I was like, no. oh, there's no other fellow. It's not my job, right? I'm not being paid for this, right? And the hope is that I will say yes, um, because you've attacked that, you know, we need underrepresented minorities to be present during the interview day, you know? So this is, it's, I think that, 
the only ways to make this better, right, are to really at an institutional level, like value it. I think that it should be like something that is regarded as, and it is like a lot of the yeah. mentorship work we do um, is valuable, right? Like, I think it only gets, if we get some record, something back from it, right? <laughs> like, um, then it's time to be, then it can be something that like can be demanded of us. But at, the, at this moment, like, I mean, all of us are just doing it for free. I'm sure, Stephen, I'm sure you're doing a ton yeah. of mentorship yeah. and like you're doing like, like I'm sure you're doing for a the ton culture, right? for free, right? And, and for the culture, imagine how much time <laughs> you would have to do other things if you were not constantly toiling for the culture, which I consider a privilege, but it's still, you know, it's still labor. Yeah. That <laughs> Sorry, is... I went on a whole rant Oh, about yeah. This. And we, we can we could keep going. But we definitely mm-hmm. need to talk about how you make time for everything that you do. Because in addition to being in an extremely busy cardiology fellowship, you're also an incredibly accomplished author and artist. Um, we've seen your work. We know you've written a mm-hmm. book, which we'll talk about very shortly. But when it comes to managing these pretty much three different careers, how do you do it? It's not easy. It takes a lot of um, it's multitasking. Um, it takes a lot of planning. I, I think I used to, I joke that I used to say I was laid back and I'm not anymore <laughs> um, because <laughs> um, every minute of my time is pretty um, budgeted for, right? Um, and that includes rest. So initially with Shirley Whirl, um, I, I've, I've always been someone who can draw and pay attention. It helps me pay attention, honestly, to be doing something with my hands. Um, and so it meant that during rounds, I, I'm drawing most of the time, right? Um, and during a presentation, I'm probably drawing, right? And that, like, be, and I don't really watch TV shows or, like, listen to podcasts or mm. really do anything idle unless I'm doing something else at the same time, right? Um, and so, uh, which, for better or for worse, right? Because, of, of course, it means that I don't, it means that everything I do, even when in leisure, leisure is like a little bit, I'm working at the same time. <laughs> With my writing, I wrote my book largely while walking across the hospital, right? I had a Google Doc wow. and I just turned at it. And on the week, yeah, it was, it was definitely like a going up and down the halls of the CCD, like taking breaks in between admissions, you know, and then I would have the occasional day off um, where I, I would basically do nothing but sit in a robe with a blanket and write. Now, these things revitalize me. Creating revitalizes me. It helps me process and it um, and it's um, being productive helps me, makes me feel good. Yeah. Right. So that is a huge reason why I do it. I, I always say on Shirley World that it's like my own I mean, I do therapy too, right? But I was my form of self-therapy, right? Where I get to some time to really process my emotions and my feelings and my thoughts in this very tangible kind of creative way that I can then present to the world. So, And, and I think one of the things that I love, love, love about you is you set boundaries. And I don't know how you've come. I'm sure there's been a process to get to where you are today, but you make no bones about it that this is, you know, when you need your time, there's your time. You are a model of what it means to be able to take control and set boundaries. It's very funny. It's not my natural state. I had a high school teacher actually pull me aside and told me, surely you need to start telling people no. Hmm. Right. And <laughs> so it's, it's, it is very much a learned behavior for me. I think it was, it started off from necessity, right? That, you know, the thing about my, my natural state is to be very, very giving. 
right? Like I, I enjoy giving, I enjoy forming relationships through to people with people. Um, and I will pour out my entire cup um, if I'm not careful for people that I care about and sometimes even for people I don't, hmm. right? So boundaries are a way to patrol myself as well as other people. I think that often without them, especially, I think this is especially pertinent to black women. People feel very entitled to black yeah. women's time and energy and talents, right? Um, and we are very rarely thought of in the reverse, right? Like people very rarely stop and think, huh, I wonder whether Shirlene has like the bandwidth for this or this or needs this or needs that. Like there's a lot of it is often, what can I get from this person, right? And so I think that as I went further in my career and as especially my following grew, it became untenable, right? Like it was literally not possible for me to be able to to do what I loved and to continue loving doing what I was doing without um, making it clear that there were certain things I wouldn't stand for, right? And um, I think it's been, it's, it's a hard thing to do. I think we're trained out of defining our boundaries, especially in medicine. Right. Um, I think in medicine is like medical training, residency training is a, I, I joke, but I think it's very real that we are literally uh, like trained for years to disrespect the heck out of our bodies <laughs> and our needs, right? <laughs> um, and so I really do it step by step. I practiced. I practiced doing it in person. I practiced not necessarily mincing words in person, right? I practiced saying no. And I set up things like, um, as you noticed with my email, if you try to email me, it gives you back a return thing saying, I'm not doing all this, any of this, right? <laughs> yes, it did. And I, it sure did, right? Um, and I, I did, I put that in place because otherwise I was spending, like I started, there was a point where I was spending two hours a day responding very kindly to people and respectfully to people about why I wasn't able to do something, mm. right? And it was taking up time and was causing me stress, right? Um, and so that is something. And I mean, I also think that, when it comes to especially having a following, right? Like have being um, a quote unquote influencer, it's such a weird uh, term. I, I have 30,000 followers right now, which is uh, 29,000. It's mm, awesome. It's 30. a little bit insane to think about. We can round up, right? Exactly. Um, and like when a lot of them engage fairly frequently, right? Um, the thing about social media is that I think it's really easy for people to, and especially because my social, like my presence is very open, right? Like I, I'm pretty much who I am online as I am in person. I'm like, I use it like a diary half the time, right? Um, and so I think it's easy for people to forget that, you know, they don't know me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not their little friend. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and so, and that they're not actually entitled to me. And so it became incredibly necessary in order to make, to have, make sure we were all something I could continue doing to be very firm about like what I was going to tolerate and what I wasn't. So that's how the boundary setting started. It's absolutely fabulous. Definitely keep it up. And, and I'm, I'm taking notes. So Dr. Abobi, we have to talk about your magnum opus, um, that book that you wrote while you were walking around in the halls of the hospital. It's, it's even more incredible hearing the backstory very soon on rotation is going to be available. Can you tell us about this book, you know, what inspired it? And of course, you know, when and where people can, can pick it up. For sure. And so I've been writing for basically my entire life. Um, it's kind of gone hand in hand with the drawing. On rotation started, or was first dreamed up when I was a second or third year medical student. And Juno Diaz, um, who was the 
uh, the writer of The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, came to University of Chicago to give a talk. Um, and during the talk, he spoke directly to the writers of color who were in the room. And this is a time at a time when, I mean, the only writer, major writers of color who like, or contemporary ones were like Chimamanda, Adichie, like, like a hand, like it was like two, three people, like not too many people. Wow. Um, and Gino Diaz himself. And he said to the room, look, you know, as people of color, we don't see ourselves represented accurately or as fully human in media. Um, and because of that, it impacts how we treat others and impacts how we treat ourselves, right? It impacts how we treat people in our own in-group because we, you know, in a lot of ways, you're not, you haven't practiced empathy for your own people, right? Yeah. Um, and that a lot of, he said something very, that really struck me where he was like, a lot of us are scared of writing about ourselves because we don't think we're worth it, hmm. right? Wow. And he was like, white writers write about themselves all the time. You know, every, like, if you, if you actually start paying attention, you'll realize that most of the protagonists in books are writers and or lawyers, because a lot of lawyers are writers. Right? <laughs> um, there's only a few careers or main characters are allowed to have in these things. Right? Um, and so he was like, you're the one who can tell your story. So write about characters like yourselves. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? I can actually do that. And before that, I hadn't felt that. You know, I, I remember when I was in high school, I deliberately wrote a, pic, a, a book with a white main character because I felt like I wouldn't be a legitimate writer if I wrote about someone like wow. Right. Which is, you know, so to hear that that wasn't something I had just come up with and to realize that and I think Chimamanda Adichie actually talks about that, too. Like she wrote about like snow and like white girls and blonde hair. Right. Like, you know, like while she was in Nigeria, <laughs> you know. And so I that's kind of when I started thinking about it. And I I, I wrote out a I think I wrote the first few chapters of on rotation in medical school and then I dropped it because I got busy um, and I got tired, uh, picked it up again at the end of my intern year and mostly this is mostly because I had really kind of lost a connection with my writing um, I hadn't done it as much and I, I wanted to dive back into it and I was stressed and I needed something to make me kind of to revitalize me the way my comics often do and writing is a little bit more portable um, so that's how I started it on rotation is you know it's meant to be happy right like it's there are a lot of very serious themes in it right um, but it's not meant to be the kind of book someone picks up and is like, this is the, the day I'm going to learn about black womanhood, right? Which is or Ghanaian American culture. Like I wanted those things to be like, like picked up via osmosis, mm -hmm. right? That like I would have a character that felt very real that dealt with a lot of the issues that black female medical student would deal with like that. While also just being about like, I don't know, her kicking it with her friends and like having regular issues and like worrying about exams and falling in love. You know what I mean? Like I just wanted something that wasn't, I was like, I don't want this to be heavy. My why I have a film agent, which is incredible. And she described it as um, like my book being like a Sunday or something. She's like, it's, <laughs> it's, that it's, it's, it's joyful at the end. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, and I, that's what I wanted. I wanted something that people would feel happy after they were done reading, like, um, and that they would laugh and that there would be occasional moments where uh, like they may, may experience some heartache, but it would get fixed, you know, and I didn't want it to be about suffering. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, it's, I, I'm going to write more. Um, I, I got so, I'm, I sometimes have to pinch myself to be like, oh my gosh, I'm published now 
uh, HarperCollins. The book comes out June 21st, 2022. Um, it's already available via pre-order basically everywhere the books are sold. Um, if you check out the link and go to my Sherlene Abobi um, link.bio, um, you'll be able to see, um, all, get access to the link to pre-order. Um, and also if you're a bookseller um, or a book blogger, you can request an advanced reading copy and, and get get a hold of it before June. <laughs> um, but it's, I don't know, it's something that I'm, I'm very, it's, it's probably like the realization of one of my earliest childhood dreams. So I still am a little bit shocked that it's happening, but um, it's very exciting. We're here for it. I've really enjoyed being along with you on this ride through your social media and all the things that you're doing. We will for sure include a link to pick up this book in the show notes, along with a link to your website. If you want to learn more about Dr. Obobi, visit her website, Sherlene Obobi. That's uh, Obobi spelled O-B-U-O-B-I. Sherleneobobi.com. You can see her beautiful website. Sherlene, where else can people follow you and, and find out more? Sure. So um, my Instagram is at ShirleyWorldMD. Um, um, it's also my tag on my handle on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm Shirlene Abobi, just my name. <laughs> so if you want to keep track of me, I, I drop lots of hot takes on all of the platforms. All of them really good. Dr. Abobi, thank you so yeah. much. Uh, I have really enjoyed the last half hour, 45 minutes talking with you, catching up from our days back at Prisker, which we will soon be reunited. So Guys, keep an eye out for me in one of these uh, Shirley World comic book strips. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. It'll be so fun. I can't wait. Thank you so much for joining us on the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters. Thank you, Dr. Bradley. <laughs> the Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.